Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. With more than 5 million square miles of U.S. domestic airspace and 24 million square miles of U.S. oceanic airspace to cover, it's easy to see how important weather observations and forecasting are to aviation. The Federal Aviation Administration, better known as the FAA, is in the midst of a massive modernization of its air traffic management system. And you can bet that a major focus of this overhaul includes weather. Today, we welcome the manager of the FAA's Aviation Weather Division, Dr. Bill Bauman, whose industry experience spans nearly four decades. Please put your trays and seat backs in the upright position and get ready for an inside look at the next generation at the FAA. Bill, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Absolutely. Thank you, Marshall. And Bill, just as a heads up, there's a question we ask every single guest every week at the start, how you got into weather. But before I do that, I'll give you a chance to think about it. And let me give your background to our listeners. Bill is the division manager of the Aviation Weather Division within the Next Generation Air Transportation System of the FAA. Uh, He's also served in the past as the chief of the Aviation and Space Weather Services branch of NOAA from 2015 to 2017 and was the programmatic lead for the National Weather Service's Aviation and Space Weather Services Program. Uh, He was a meteorologist in the U.S. Navy from 1981 to 2001, has a master's and Ph.D. in atmospheric sciences from North Carolina State University. Shout out to my good friend Gary Lackman down there at NC State, and has a B.S. in meteorology from Linden State College. So card-carrying meteorologists like myself, three degrees in meteorology. So I'm sure we're going to weather geek out today on the episode. But before that, Bill, how did you get into weather? Was it a kid, the kid's experience, a storm? What got you interested? Um, yeah, like most meteorologists, I think I've run into it was as a kid, but I am going to have to correct you. I was not in the Navy, so I, I was in the Air Force. Oh, wow. Well, so, I, I know how that, well, this is, I'm reading from my producer notes here, but I know how, how competitive that Air Force versus Navy. So your skin was probably crawling there. As I was absolutely. I was like, no, I haven't been on a ship. But shout that's out to all, shout out to all our service men and women from the U.S. Navy, Air Force, Army Marines, and those serving us in the Coast Guard as well. We want to make sure we get that right. So I'll make sure to note that to our producers in case they have something on our websites as well. So meteorologists with the Air Force, we'll definitely get make sure we have that. But uh, yeah, continue on with your story. Yeah, sure. So I, I think it was when I was about 12 years old. Um, I had used money from my paper route and to buy my first weather station and probably feel going, what in the world's a paper route? So for us old folks, uh, when we were kids, we actually used to ride our bikes around and throw papers uh, onto the front lawn of people's houses. And we got paid for doing that. So I bought my first weather station and I logged daily observations for years off that. And uh, I grew up just north of New York City, and I was always interested in East Coast snowstorms and nor'easters. And as best I can recall, the first major weather event that really sparked my interest in meteorology was the blizzard of 69, and it actually shut down New York City. And I remember my dad's car was covered under snowdrifts for days. And as time went on, and I, I learned to like weather even more in 1976, I think it was, 
Hurricane Bell made landfall in Western Long Island and downed trees in my yard and neighborhood. We had a couple inches of rain. And I think that really secured my goal to become a weather forecaster. So as you mentioned, Marshall, I did go to college at Linden State College, which is well known for its forecasting. Um, and it's now Northern Vermont University, I believe. And that's where I got my BS in meteorology. Um, when I was looking at graduating about midway through college, the job market wasn't great for meteorologists. The National Weather Service had a hiring freeze on. Uh, but I discovered that I could serve my country in the Air Force. I could have gone Navy as well. Uh, but I entered the Air Force uh, after uh, I joined uh, Air Force ROTC. And that led me to my 20-year career as an Air Force meteorologist. And uh, unbeknownst to me, when I joined the Air Force, that decision led to my nearly 40-year career, as you mentioned so far, in aviation and aerospace meteorology. So that was not my goal starting off. I just wanted to be a weather forecaster and ended up with the focus on aviation and aerospace. Uh, while in the Air Force, I supported some pretty cool missions. I was lucky enough uh, to be selected to attend graduate school, as you mentioned, for my master's and PhD at North Carolina State University while I was in active duty. Uh, but I had a couple of assignments, one in the UK where I was a wing weather officer and supported, supported strategic reconnaissance, uh, especially the SR-71 Blackbird spy plane was really cool. And I was at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station for three years where I supported space launch missions, including a space shuttle. Uh, as you mentioned, once I retired from the Air Force, um, I did join the National Weather Service, but I did a stint as a uh, contractor for NASA for 12 years back at Cape Canaveral. And I provided weather technology transition services to NASA, uh, the Air Force's 45th Weather Squadron and the National Weather Service office in Melbourne. So then in 2015, I did join the National Weather Service, again, focus on aviation. And in 2017, I was hired by the FAA in my current role as the manager of the Aviation Weather Division. And we're at the FAA headquarters in Washington, DC. And before we really dive into what you all, exciting things that you have uh, going on at the FAA, you mentioned aerospace weather and you worked in space weather. Uh, just give us a quick 101 for the listeners, because I, I, of course I know what space weather is, but oftentimes when people hear that term, I think they are thinking about forecasting thunderstorms on other planets and things like that. They may not uh, know that space weather is something that we deal, we deal with here on our planet and can impact their daily lives. So just give us a 101 on what space weather is. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I wasn't that directly involved in space weather until I got to the FAA when I supported the mission at Kennedy Space Center. Um, most of the weather work that we did was for terrestrial weather because the goal was to get a uh, space vehicle from the ground up into uh, space. So mostly we're dealing with flying through the atmosphere. But when we talk about space weather, uh, that's basically the effects of the sun on the edges of our atmosphere. So that includes things like radiation and the effects on people, um, errors to GPS navigation, which affects obviously aircraft, uh, among other things. Um, so that's really the focus on space weather. It's really the effects of the sun on just the edge of our atmosphere and then into our atmosphere. Yeah, and I think it's important. I, I remember when we did the TV version of the show on the Weather Channel, we had Tom Bogdan on and talking about his concerns about these space weather events and these uh, sort of solar flares and other things that can disrupt our communication and GPS and activities that many of us take for granted. 
But I think something that most people are familiar with is aviation on our planet, flying around in airplanes. Weather, and it is well known, and if Weather Geeks listeners that haven't followed me for a while know, I actually don't like to fly. I'm, I'm, I've, I've flown all of my life for jobs, but I'm very hesitant to do it now. And part of the reason I tell people that is even though I'm fascinated by seeing the weather from above, Part of me as a meteorologist also knows the danger of weather to flying. It's one of the top uh, aviation hazards, if not the top, in terms of some of the uh, accidents that we've seen over the last several decades. Talk, uh, Bill, uh, just about the general hazards that weather poses for aviation. Sure. Um, As people know that have flown, obviously, I think the one thing that affects them the most is turbulence. And I hate to admit it, but as a former Air Force officer, I'm not fond of flying either. And I did fly some missions with the Air Force. Uh, But again, you know, when you're getting bounced around in a a metal tube flying at 500 knots at 35,000 feet, it's a little bit unsettling. But then again, you look at the, um, the national airspace system that the FAA runs across this country. And for 10 years, we have not had a fatal accident in commercial aviation. So people also hear that flying is the safest mode of transportation. It's more dangerous to be in your car. While that's true, when you go over bumps in a road in your car, you're on the ground. And when you're flying, it's turbulence. So uh, the work that we're doing in our aviation weather research program, one of the areas we focus on is turbulence. And we've produced a capability called graphical turbulence guidance. And that's a high resolution gridded global detection and forecast of turbulence that includes clear turbulence, mountain wave turbulence, and low level turbulence. And it's based on what's called eddy dissipation rate. So I'll geek out for just a minute here because typically in the years past, turbulence was subjective and one pilot might call it moderate. Another might call it light to moderate, another might call it severe. So we have an objective way to measure turbulence now, and uh, most of the aircraft flying in commercial space are outfitted with sensors to measure the eddy dissipation rate. So that's an objective aircraft-independent measure of turbulence based on the rate at which energy dissipates in the atmosphere. So the nice part about this is we get these observations from aircraft flying not just across our country, but all over the world when they're outfitted. And it goes into a database and that helps us output the forecast of the graphical turbulence guidance that's available at the NOAA National Weather Service aviationweather.gov, the Aviation Weather Center's website. And it's also because it's a gridded field, it can be directly um, provided to the commercial carriers and they produce their own products out of that for their pilots, some of them using it in the cockpit to try and avoid the turbulence based on those forecasts. Yeah, that's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with aviation weather because one of my colleagues at the University of Georgia, and shout out to Dr. John Knox, uh, very much is working in this area. In fact, the, he and Gary Elrod have worked on one of the clear air turbulence algorithms that's out there in the peer reviewed literature. I also want to take this time to give a shout out to, I know her as Tammy Ferrer. Uh, I know she was married a couple of years ago, so has, has a different name now, but classmate of mine from Florida State University, and uh, I, I just want to give her a shout out because this this show is happening in part because of uh, in part because of my relationship with her. We're talking with Dr. Bill Bauman. Is it Bauman, Bill? I want to make sure I'm pronouncing your name correctly. 
It's Bauman, but Bauman. I've, I've been called worse, so that's <laughs> close enough. That's fine. And yeah. uh, I'll just capitalize on that. Uh, you mentioned about Tammy. So Tammy Flo is her, her new name. Um, she is responsible for the graphical turbulence guidance capability that we have um, developed and really helps to keep people safe. And the latest version of what we call GTG, graphical turbulence guidance, is actually a nowcast. And people that are familiar with that, it's a short-term forecast. And this provides 15-minute updates of the turbulence forecast, including the most recent pilot reports that go directly to the cockpit, to some of the commercial airlines, as well as to um, uh, anybody that wants to receive the, the product. And that allows pilots in real time to navigate around areas of forecast turbulence. So once we get uh, back to flying again after the pandemic is over and folks may notice their, their flights are hopefully smoother, that's in part due to Tammy's work on the turbulence product and having that now cast to navigate in real time around forecast areas of turbulence. And we're, we're talking with D uh, Bill Bauman here from the FAA. What is next gen? I know that's something that's a big program within the FAA. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so NextGen's been around for, uh, I think, about 10 years now, and it's actually uh, a short for Next Generation Air Transportation System. So NextGen coordinates uh, initiatives, programs, and policy development across various FAA lines of business and staff uh, offices. So um, we work at the Aviation Weather Division in concert with other U.S. federal and state government agencies uh, international counterparts to improve weather observation and forecast. So that's our part of NextGen or the Next Generation Air Transportation System. So it's really been an improvement in technology and capabilities across what we call the NAS or the National Airspace System uh, across the continental United States. Uh, and that's upgrades of systems and capabilities to make flying for the general public commercially, as well as general aviation, safer and more efficient. Yeah, it's, it's a really important, important part. Oh, what's going on? I think we're having some feedback there. This is, this is the world. By the way, thank you to the Weather Geeks listeners for bearing with us, because in this, in this time of COVID-19, uh, we've had to change the way we are doing business here, and we're recording these uh, in a different manner, not in studios, but in our homes using uh, some of the video conferencing technology. So thanks for bearing with all the little technical little things that come up here and there, uh, and perhaps even a slightly reduced audio quality experience from what you may be used to with Weather Geeks when we do it in the studio. Hopefully we can get back to all of that soon. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about you know, the the motivations behind the modernization and full overhaul of the aviation system. Why why is it needed? You you just mentioned that, you know, things have been pretty safe as far as aviation. So I'm, I'm sure this is not, not a cheap uh, and, and it's a timely process, but what's the motivation for why now? So again, I said it, uh, NextGen started about 10 years ago. So it's just a continuation of improvement for aviation safety and efficiency uh, across our country. And if you look specifically from um, the weather side of things, which obviously from our aviation weather division perspective and weather across the FAA, and, and I should also mention that um, the aviation weather division is part of NextGen, but weather is across the entire FAA. It's in the operation side, it's in the flight standard side, it's in the flight safety side. It's in what we call our program management organization, where we do our procurements 
and uh, support things like NEXRAD radar and uh, automatic surface observing systems. So the aviation weather division is just one part of what we do. But if you look back into the 1970s, just from a weather perspective, when we had uh, a number of commercial airline crashes that we discovered were due to uh, downbursts from thunderstorms and um, wind shear. So the FAA worked on systems, uh, one called low-level wind shear alert system, which is at numerous airports, which is a um, variety of wind sensors placed around an airport property to specifically to detect shear and provide that alert to aircraft so that they don't fly into that shear upon landing. And also the terminal Doppler weather radars, which are different than the WSR-88D NEXRAD radars, which were jointly deployed by the FAA, the Weather Service, and uh, the Air Force um, back in the very early 90s. So the terminal Doppler weather radars are located at, uh, I believe, the core 30 airports, which is what they're typically called, the ones with the highest um, uh, flow rate, such as the New York City airports, D.C., Atlanta, Chicago, and whatnot. And these radars are specifically to detect wind shear and provide wind shear alerts to aircraft. And that's one of the things through the FAA improvements, including NextGen over the years, that have virtually eliminated, or at least mitigated, the danger of wind shear for aircraft upon landing, which is one reason we have not had an accident in the last 10 years. Um, you look at other improvements like satellite technology, where aircraft now navigate almost entirely by GPS. So those are the types of things that NextGen has improved over the years. And you want to continue to improve just because you've solved um, a lot of the problems. There's still things out there. We can still be more efficient and make sure we maintain our safety. Yeah, and we, and we thank everyone in the government system that's doing that. Mention some of the meteorological or weather-related hazards that we deal with. Uh, you talked about turbulence and you've talked about wind shear and, and microbursts and the terminal Doppler radar system. I, I have some statistics here, and please correct me if um, uh, they're not correct. 69% um, of all delays in the national airspace system are caused by some type of weather-related event. And one of the reasons I bring that up is I think thunderstorms and perhaps turbulence are things that come to mind. But can you talk a little bit about how impactful things like icing and fog are and even snowstorms? Yeah, certainly. Um, icing is more of an impact to smaller aircraft, what we call general aviation aircraft, which might hold, you know, you know two to six passengers. Um, larger commercial aircraft are typically de-iced at an airport if necessary, and they have icing mitigation built into the aircraft wings, so it's not as much of a problem there. Of course, you are delayed if you have to de-ice an aircraft while it's waiting to take off. So certainly winter weather and icing uh, is a cause on the ground. Typically, when a commercial aircraft is airborne, uh, icing is mitigated pretty quickly, but we've developed uh, products mainly for general aviation called current icing product and then forecast icing product. We call them SIP and FIP. And uh, we use high resolution rapid refresh model, the HER, uh, your folks uh, listening may be familiar with, geostationary satellite data and NEXRAD dual pole data to help us observe and forecast icing to help general aviation. But of course there's snowstorms. As I mentioned, uh, that's one of the things that got me into meteorology as a, as a kid growing up in New York, waiting for that big Northeaster, or Nor'easter I should say, 
uh, to bring the blizzard and cancel school for the next day. So that, that was the big goal, but we still have that impact and we're pretty good at forecasting major snow events now. So um, the, the idea to make the NAS more efficient and obviously more safe uh, based on those forecasts of snowstorms is to cancel everything before it happens. You don't want people sitting at the airport and have the flights canceled. So typically you'll see the larger airports do a pretty good job based on forecasts of winter weather to shut down and cancel flights a day or more before the storms hit. So that's certainly an impact, but it's much better to have your flight canceled when you're sitting at home than when you're sitting at the airport. Um, Marshall, you mentioned convection. So thunderstorms obviously are something you don't ever want to fly into in, in any aircraft at all. And we've got several uh, programs we've worked on dealing with convection and the forecasting thereof. But one thing that's very unique with convection is where it occurs and when it occurs. So you could have a line of thunderstorms out over the Dakotas in the middle of the afternoon, which is a minor impact to the national airspace system because you don't have a lot of air traffic flying through that area. It can fly around it. Oddly enough, a couple of pop-up thunderstorms in the summer over eastern Pennsylvania can completely disrupt the entire national airspace system because the exit corridors for flights coming out of the New York area, Kennedy, LaGuardia, Newark, for example, have to fly through those corridors in Pennsylvania. You throw a couple thunderstorms in there and they have to reroute, maybe go up through Canada, maybe fly south, and that can disrupt the entire national airspace system. So we're very aware of where the convection might occur and how to forecast for that. We have uh, 21 air route traffic control centers in the FAA that control our traffic across the country. And co-located with them are a team of National Weather Service forecasters. They're called Cent uh, center uh, uh, weather forecast units, and they directly support those artsies and those controllers with weather for their region. So they're looking at things like the convection, especially if it's going to occur in one of those corridors and give them a heads up, and hopefully they can pre-plan that traffic around potential thunderstorms. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm at the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with a colleague about the FAA. I think people know the FAA, they're familiar with it, but may not think about how much weather uh, affects their flying. And hopefully after COVID-19, we can sort of get back to some normalcy on aviation activity. By the way, Bill, is there, from your lens at FAA, I mean, I've have you all noticed any sort of, clearly there are changes in the amount of activity, aviation activity going on. I actually wrote something uh, in Forbes because I know, and I'm sure you know this as well, many of our listeners may not know this, but uh, there's a lot of information from aircraft that go into our weather models. Can, can you briefly tell people about that? Because I think some people may not know that. Yeah, actually uh, the aircraft observations that we get that are automated uh, we'll get wind speed, wind direction, uh, temperature uh, from some of the aircraft. We get uh, atmospheric moisture. 
And that feeds the weather forecast models directly for part of the initialization of the models. And that um, those observations from the aircraft are most impactful to the weather models, not the surface observations, not the radio sound um, balloon releases, but that aircraft data. And uh, we've monitored that through uh, our partners at the National Weather Service and also internationally, looking at the reduction of that data ever since uh, COVID-19 started. And um, we have yet to see what the actual impacts are on those models. I'm sure we'll find out what the statistics are when they're done over time. But certainly we noticed a drastic reduction in those observations. And because they're so important for the forecast models, I'm sure there was a detriment to the, the model initialization. And then obviously the forecast garbage in, garbage out. Well, if you don't have good data going in, the forecast could be um, impacted. So I suspect we'll see again when, when uh, the statistics are run, how that was impacted due to the lack of commercial aircraft flying. Yeah, I, I agree. We're talking with Dr. Bill Bauman uh, of the FAA. Now, speaking of weather and pilots, there's something called weather in the cockpit. Now, that, that's a little bit different from what we were just talking about. I mean, what, what kind of information are, are pilots receiving in real time in the cockpit? Sure. We actually have a program within um, our weather research branch in the Aviation Weather Division called Weather Technology in the Cockpit Program, or we call it WIDIC for short. And what they do is they develop a minimum weather service recommendations for cockpit weather, uh, for its rendering, for pilot weather training, and the cockpit weather technology that they incorporate into standards, guidance documents, and training materials. Um, it's mostly focused on the general aviation pilot. Commercial pilots typically have a pretty good crew of folks standing behind them from um, commercial weather services providing their forecasting or in-house meteorologists um, helping the pilots. But if you're a general aviation pilot, you do a pre-flight weather briefing and then you're kind of on your own. So uh, we provide a lot of training and research um, through human factors to help pilots better understand how to avoid impactful weather and make sure they're flying in the conditions they're trained for. A lot of the accidents that still occur today across the United States and especially in Alaska where there's a lot of open territory and not a lot of observations, um, pilots get themselves into trouble because they misinterpret the weather radar data that they might have being uploaded to their uh, tablet or to their phone when they're flying um, and don't realize things like it takes five minutes for a radar to scan a volume. It takes a couple of minutes to process it. So that information could be 10 minutes old by the time they see it and it's not what they're seeing when they look out the window. So that weather technology in the cockpit is very important, mostly for training and getting pilots to understand what the tools they have are to use in their cockpit and how that relates to the capabilities that are provided through different weather services. And we are talking with Dr. Bill Bauman from the FAA. Uh, there's something else that has one of these sort of inside the Beltway government names. <laughs> Again, I've, I've spent many time, uh, years, 12 years, in fact, at NASA, so I'm very familiar with what I call uh, inside the beltway speak, but it, it's certainly important in, in the sort of federal agency circles. But there's something called the WILD or Weather Information Latency Demonstrator. Oh, that sounds very, <laughs> very inside the beltway. What is the WILD program? So, yeah, and I've tried very hard to avoid using acronyms because having grown up in the Air Force and then uh, supporting NASA, 
the Weather Service and FAA, uh, the government does tend to speak in acronyms. So I'm certainly trying to avoid that. But WILD, um, the, the key um, part of that acronym is latency. And as I mentioned, that's one of the issues we find with general aviation pilots is they don't realize that there's a latency or a delay in some of the weather information that they are actually getting up in their cockpit when they're flying these small general aviation aircraft. So again, if you have a tablet and you have a service that's providing you um, weather information, it may be old and the pilots may not realize that. They're flying through weather, they're paying attention to what's going on out the window, and they may not look at the timestamp, for example, on the, on the radar image. So WILD is a system that was developed by our weather technology in the cockpit program. Uh, specifically, Gary Pocodner runs that program for us. And uh, both Gary and Ian Johnson, who work on the program, developed this kind of like a flight simulator. And what it does is it helps train pilots to understand the latency. It shows them what they're looking at out the window. And you may see a developing cumulonimbus cloud out your window and you look at the radar and you say, well, geez, that doesn't look like it's in the right spot. Well, that's that latency piece. And we're really trying to help the general aviation pilots understand that latency and to keep them out of, out of danger and make sure if they're a VFR pilot, which means they have to have visual flight rules, they don't want to get into the clouds or certainly get near thunderstorms and they need to understand that latency. So it's really kind of a cool flight simulator tool and you can run it on your PC. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back for the last segment of Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I want to continue on this uh, pathway through some of Bill's programs at FAA. Uh, You've heard about weather in the cockpit, uh, weather information latency demonstrators. There's one more sort of term I'm going to throw out there at the listeners, but I'm I'm sure it's going to be right at home to Bill. And that's the automatic dependent surveillance broadcast. Ah, yes, another Beltway term. So talk about what that is. Right. So it's easier to just use the acronym. We call that ADSB. And that's something that the FAA is requiring uh, aircraft to be equipped with that fly um, in the United States. So one of the benefits to having ADSB out, as it's called, the output from that is uh, similar to other systems that commercial aircraft carry that I previously mentioned that do provide weather information in the form of an observation, such as wind speed, wind direction, uh, temperature, uh, turbulence output, and again, some do provide atmospheric moisture. The ADSB out system also has the capability, including general aviation aircraft when they're equipped, to provide some of that weather information, those observations. So typically, we're getting a lot of those observations at the cruise altitude of commercial aircraft, 30, 35, 40,000 feet, as well as on takeoff and landing. But ADSB out is also helping with lower altitudes because the general aviation aircraft don't fly that high. And it provides more output of weather observations that go into the numerical forecast models and then assume you you get a better forecast out of that. You've got more accurate, more data going into the models. 
and then you'll get a better forecast. So it's a real benefit, not just to those who fly, but since it's the forecast models, it's for everything that goes into forecasts that come out of the, uh, the government models run by the National Weather Service. Now, we've been talking primarily about weather and aviation weather and aviation hazards, but I've become aware of something called environmental goals of next gen. Uh, and this is an ongoing initiative within the FAA to create a new unleaded fuel for aircraft. And I guess this sort of meets at next gen's goals of a cleaner environment. Uh, talk a little bit about this, this initiative. Uh, actually, I'm not familiar with that initiative. Okay. That's not something that we do in uh, aviation weather division. There's an environmental um, line of business in FAA, and that's the work that they do. Okay. So, yeah. Now, again, this is like, something my producers wanted me to ask you about, and they did put in parentheses, to be fair. Ask him if he can speak on this as well, and apparently this is something that, that you can't speak on, but it's uh, – uh, AV gas emissions have been the largest contributor to relatively low levels of lead emissions. And once developed and distributed, apparently there will be some improvements in environmental cleanliness in the air. And so this is something that we'll maybe find some other guests to talk about. So don't want to ever put anyone on a, on a spot there if they can't, they can't uh, do a topic. But this is a place where, again, I have to give a shout out to our Weather Geeks producers, uh, Heather Zons and Sarah Dillingham uh, primarily these days because they they are very thorough in their research in preparation for this program. And I always like to give them a shout out because a lot of times people don't don't hear or see that. What's what's next for you in the FAA, Bill, as we sort of draw to a close here? So some of the work that we're doing, um, as as I'd already mentioned, uh, the turbulence work, icing work, we're working on um, improving convection forecasts. Um, advanced weather radar techniques, ceiling visibility forecasts. We work with uh, sensors. We're evaluating a new sensor for ASOS, which is the Automatic Surface Observing System, which is at all of the uh, airports across the country, um, major airports anyway, uh, to better detect winter precipitation. But what we're trying to do is kind of hone in on our stakeholder needs. We have a uh, requirements branch within the Aviation Weather Division And we have a web portal where stakeholders can actually upload their problem statements to us for us to review to see if it's a valid requirement. So we're trying to, instead of just continue to research turbulence, icing, convection, find out specific stakeholder problems and hone in on those. For example, we've heard from commercial pilots that we do a really good job, and by we, I mean the weather community at large, uh, working with National Weather Service, the numerical forecast models do a pretty good job forecasting areas of severe turbulence, and the airlines know how to avoid those, as do our flight planners at our command center for the FAA, so they route aircraft around that, but the models are not as good predicting subtleties of light and light to moderate turbulence. And the last thing you want to do is be standing up in an aircraft or not have your seatbelt on or have the flight attendants working when you hit unexpected turbulence. And they've asked us to take a look at better forecasting light and light to moderate. So we're honing in on those very specific stakeholder needs to try and better those forecasts as we um, improve our technologies, higher resolution models, um, more sensors, as you mentioned, ADSB and um, the sensors on the aircraft to provide that information and then feed that back in the model. So we have numerous programs that, that are honing in on those stakeholder requirements, and that's one of our focus moving forward. 
Where, where can people find more information about any of your programs, either on the website or social media? So they can certainly go to FAA.gov. Uh, they can do an internet search for aviation weather, next-gen weather, and uh, there's a couple of sites within FAA.gov uh, that they can read about those. And also the form to upload um, problems from the stakeholders is on FAA.gov as well. We really have appreciated you being here. Are you yourself specifically on social media anywhere or any place people can follow you? Uh, typically, I am not. So okay. I'm not big on social media. My kids certainly do that, but that's not something that, that uh, I've really been involved in. Okay. Well, just so that we like for people to promote whenever we have guests, they often will promote their social media sites if they have them. And we have to get out of here. But before I do, it's time for our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Curtis Kitchen. He's the Director of Marketing at Society for Simulation in Healthcare. Even as a kid, Curtis loved watching the Weather Channel, so he didn't miss a thing. Apparently, the Weather Channel rubbed off on him because he used to film his own weather reports in the backyard of his home. His favorite weather is severe storms, but he would rather view them from a distance to see the storm structure. He still keeps his eye on the weather by checking the Storm Prediction Center's webpage every day. Congratulations, Curtis, on being our geek of the week. And be sure to check out our social media page uh, for information on how you can become a Geek of the Week or nominate someone. And be sure to follow Curtis at Curtis Kitchen on Twitter. Bill, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Sure thing, Marshall. Happy to do it. And I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. We will see you next time on Weather Geeks. Weather Geeks.